I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Napalm smells best in the evening. It's not worth believing what you heard. Soil and green. Just a trisket, not a people biscuit, take my word. It's instead you can't handle the truth, but that ain't so. How do I know I was The year was 1985. I was a sixth grader at Granada Middle School in Whittier, California. My friend and tastemaker Matt Russell handed me an oversized black and white comic book about turtles. But hold on, these turtles were also ninjas. And I should also mention that they were of course mutants as well. And when we went to class, hold on, there's more. They were teenagers, like me. But still there was something else. They were funny, and the world that they lived in was dark and violent. Bloody, really. And that, of course, appealed to a young me, and I became obsessed. I bought all the issues. I drew the turtles everywhere I could, as you will hear in this interview, and even went so far as to track down their creators, Kevin Eastman and Peter Laird, at the then-still-relatively-young San Diego Comic-Con. I got them to sign my original copies of the comics. I still have them to this day. I thought I was into something special and something that belonged to a small group of collectors that were in the know. But I was really just a part of a growing and enormous group of people that would eventually become the Turtle Maniacs. So when Raphael, Michelangelo, Leonardo, and Donatello became mass market celebrities, I had my first ever hard knock experience in realizing your heroes could be sellouts. How could they take my cool black and white reptilian Avengers of the Night and turn them into animated Technicolor kids' toys? I mean, they took something called Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and made them child's play. You can't just take something that's a teenager and a mutant and a ninja and a turtle and not take it seriously. But of course I was wrong. And now I know that everyone should experience turtle power. Why was I so selfish? Well, I don't know. I was 12. But I'm not anymore, and I'm not selfish anymore, and I'm glad to celebrate the first and best Ninja Turtle film here today. Amen. Well, I'm Matt Gorley, host of I Was There Too, the show where I talk to people present in the most interesting scenes of cinema and stuff. 
Today, Josh Pice is my guest. He played Raphael in the first Ninja Turtles movies, and among many other things, can also be seen in Dennis Leary's new show, Sex, Drugs, and Rock and Roll. Now let's connect him to last episode's guest. Josh Molina to Tom Cruise in A Few Good Men. Tom Cruise to Jerry O'Connell in Jerry Maguire. Uh, Jerry O'Connell to Corey Feldman in Stand By Me. Corey Feldman to Josh Pice in Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. There. Today's episode is a real corker. And make sure, god damn it, make sure to stay tuned after the interview for another installment of one of the most important segments history has ever known. Okay. Here we go. The film, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. The year, 1990. The role, Raphael. The actor, Josh Pice. So, Josh Pice, I feel like I need to reveal my credentials to you in that uh, not only was I a huge Ninja Turtles fan when I was younger, Raphael was my guy, so much so that I carved him into the door of my bedroom nice. here as nice. pictured. I know that there's no color headband. That's a good carving. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I had some issues I had to work out on door fixtures. <laughs> but it is confirmed in the comments there that that is Raphael, so you're kind of a hero of mine in many ways. Wow. Thank good. you for being here. Sure. So um, you're Raphael, who's, uh, you know, you're the bad boy. You're the brooder, the tough guy. What do you think got you that role of, as opposed to one of the other turtles? Well, I, I grew up in the East Village in New York City. You had a bit of a chip on your shoulder already? Kind of. I mean, it, it was just a very tough neighborhood. Uh-huh. And uh, I had to, you know, being kind of a scrawny kid, had to make myself at times walk bigger and tougher <laughs> than I actually was so that I wouldn't get perpetually mugged. And really, until I was 13, I got mugged all the time. You're kidding. Yeah, until I actually started doing martial arts. And then I never, nobody ever bothered me and I never used martial arts, but that that ended that. Why? Because you just carried yourself in a I way that I carried myself different. I must, prior to that, I must have just been, you know, hey, mug me. Um, <laughs> but... Uh, yeah, I just had um, it, it increased my awareness of my environment. Uh, we would do we would spar in the dark, so it really trained uh, all of us to become really aware of our environment. And I think just having that awareness—that's um, all I can assume. Having that awareness, um, you know. I, I could feel when people were around me. Did you ever have any particularly violent muggings or were they just your run no, of the mill? No, they were, um, a lot of it was, um, I went to this hippie school called the Little Red Schoolhouse and <laughs> there was the um, the mafia kids uh, uh, and they went to Our Lady of Pompeii. Oh my God, um, Which These was names. like right down, the, right down yeah. the street. And they would just... Um, they would just kind of terrorize us, and it oh. wasn't like it, it never got really bloody, but it it was they would kind of you know circle us and kind of play catch with us, like push us back and forth. That's and horrible. Yeah, it was just it was kind of it was just kids terrorizing each other. Yeah, um, and but it was it was just you know at times it was absolutely terrifying, and other times it was like okay, you know I know this will be over in about twelve minutes. You know, they'll get bored. Um, wasn't, you know, it was 
Well, this goes a long way. What if I started weeping right now (laughs) and had like a total, total meltdown? There's something about that, that if, if the guy that played Raphael just starts weeping. Right. I think, I think I would be open to that. I have to tell you. I'm going to, I'll be open to all my emotions. Please. I don't consider myself the Barbara Walters of podcasts, but if you wish to cry, I'm ready to take Uh, on that mantle. Let me just be open to it. Please. And, uh, please, you won't force it. Okay. But that does go a long way in answering one of my next questions about why you are, if I'm correct, the only one of the turtles that's in the suit and does the voice because you have the martial arts skills and also a bit of the experience of someone living in New York like Raphael. Yeah. I mean, I, Basically, we we rehearsed the movie like a play um, for about three weeks in North Carolina. And during that process, um, we each had somebody that operated our faces. And it was a very important relationship. And we really took it seriously. And, and the puppeteer, in a sense, that controlled the face really wanted to capture my face oh, wow. and to really match this physicality that I had created. And this is someone from the Henson Company, Yeah, right? someone yeah. from the Henson Company. And and I developed a physicality and a voice that was so connected to the body that when it came time to, you know, put it all together, they just couldn't imagine anybody else doing doing the voice. That's saying something because it didn't happen for the other three guys, not to take anything away from them, but that yeah, that's saying something. Now you can cry. <laughs> uh, so what's the audition process like for a Ninja Turtle? You've done so much other work, much of which we'll talk about in a minute, but that must have been different than anything you'd done, I mean, done, my, right? my agent called and said, you have an audition for, for Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Were you familiar and, with that? No, not at all. And I had to literally have him say it three times <laughs> because I, my mind couldn't grasp Why those four it? words Why together. Why would it? Yeah. Um, and then, you know, he said it's to be a turtle and, uh, and just, I was okay. Are you thinking at any point, like, like, you know, most people that start out in acting in elementary school play a tooth or a tree or a turtle and here you are auditioning for a turtle. You just, yeah, whatever I, the world I mean, takes I was, you. Yeah. I mean, part of me was like, you know, what's, what's happened, you know, what's happened to me. And another part of me was like, I, you know, I'm just starting out. I'll, I'll do anything. Of course. Yeah. And, and I read the script and I loved it and I loved the character and, uh, and I created just a way that he moved, um, like I said, as a kid and a lot of people in growing up in tough neighborhoods, like they develop walks to develop a stature so that nobody will mess with them. And that combined, I played with that combined with how turtles, their hands move out to the side, oh, yeah. and then I kind of put it all together and developed a strut, and and just really created a physicality for the character as I do for most of the things that I do, and and I threw in a couple um, flying kicks, and um, and it, it it worked. How long did it take you to acclimate to the suit in terms of conveying your physicality? Because I, I would imagine that's different with no suit, and then you take on the burden of that weight. You've got to, what, heighten it a little bit, or how does that work? Yeah, I mean, the suit weighed 70 pounds, Jeez. and it was uh, quite a process to get it on. And uh, the last part that would go on was the head, and, and then they would glue the head on. 
And I read a little bit about this. This is a tough experience for you. Right? It, at, at times, it was really tough. I, I'd never experienced claustrophobia before, but you're completely sealed in. It's hard to breathe, and it gets hotter and hotter and hotter. And, and you have very limited vision. And it, it, it w when we were shooting, it was fine because that, that intensity of being in the suit, like I ju it just helped me with the performance. Um, in terms of moving, um, it just, you know, also I would look at myself when I was in the suit and just the muscles and, and just allowed all that to affect how I moved and... Um, it, 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 when we were shooting, it was awesome. When really? we were, when we stopped, you know, between takes and things would break down because at that time it was cutting edge technology and things were breaking down all the time. And we'd be in these suits for hours with nothing, you know, while something's going wrong. Well, that uh, begs the bigger question. What about bathroom breaks without you just had to deal with it? I, just had to deal. I mean, we... We lost, we lose five pounds from morning to lunch oh every God, day. Just from sweating. And just from, just yeah. from sweating. Um, and, uh, yeah, we would just drain as much as we could before, <laughs> before getting in and just knowing that we couldn't get out. And so if your vision is limited, how did that affect – you had some pretty precision fight scenes. And are you doing most all of the stunts in the fight? I'm doing – I'm doing um, – the less impressive stuff, uh, go, like probably going into the fight, some of the um, basic um, stuff, but anything where there was, uh, you know, flips and, and that kind of stuff, they had stunt guys to do the real up in the air, all that kind of stuff. Uh -huh. Interesting. Um, but we, tr we trained for four months before shooting. All four of you together? Yeah. Wow. Well, three of us... Um, one one guy was in already in London. Oh, okay. He, was, he came from London. And so, did you have any expectations when this thing came out? Were you by then pretty familiar with the franchise and understood that there was a big following, or was it a surprise to you that this was such a? I don't know. I had a. Hit? a I mean, people kept saying, you, you know, this is gonna, this is really gonna be something, and. I remember going to the premiere and watching the movie and it was really in the first five minutes I, I had the sense that this was a phenomenon. Mm -hmm. From the people that I talked to that were fans of the Turtles all throughout their, I don't know, their long life, this is the movie everybody seems to go back to because they've done, I don't know, two or three reboots and cartoons and CG versions. And right. Yeah, this seems to be the one that resonates with people. Why is that? I guess because you're the original, the tried and true, you know? I don't know, the, the benchmark that every Raphael's got to live up to at this point, <laughs> you carry that with you. Right. Uh, so I want to ask you specifically about some of the acting when you're in the suit. So you have this moment when Splinter is kidnapped and you especially take it pretty hard and you do this big screaming moment. It's an emotional moment. Right. In a normal scene where you're not wearing a costume, we have to see every intricacy of your face how much of that is still like really an acting moment for you that you have to prepare? Or, I mean, I imagine some people would sort of phone that in. I don't know. How did that no, work for I you? I mean, it, I took it just as, as seriously. Uh, you know, I, I attempted to commit as fully as I possibly could with everything. 
I, I really don't think you can phone it in if if it's going to resonate, especially um, because people read actors consciously or unconsciously based on how their bodies move and the energy that they're emitting, and you can't you can't fake that. Mm-hmm. So you can't really you can't phone it in. That's a testament to you, though, because that comes across in your wearing a seventy-pound suit. That's that's something. You're a unique guest for this podcast because you not only play Raphael in the suit, but you're also the voice. But you also appear in the film as yourself, as the man in the cab, right? I do. Yeah, this yeah. is like a triple threat in a way. Yeah, that was that was super fun. We had uh, yeah, we shot me kind of coming and rolling over the cab. Uh, and that's right. Yeah. You're in a scene with yourself. I'm in a scene with myself. Yeah. But so you're doing your own shot, coverage. It, yeah. It was shot on different days oh, and, wow. in, and actually in different locations. Um, because the interior stuff inside the cab was just in a cab. I believe we were in a studio ah. and just shooting it, you know, right there. Cause so most of your shoot was in North Carolina, but you did what a couple of, we did about a, a week in New York. Uh-huh. We shot the, Things in uh, Central Park, the scene with Casey Jones, um, me coming out of a movie theater, me at City Hall. Oh, yeah. Most of your scenes where you're wearing your flasher garb. Right. Exactly. (laughs) How was it working with Elias Coteas? It was great. He seems like an intense and fun guy. Super, super intense, super um, playful, but, um, you know, first intense. And and he he was super, I mean... I've met him, you know, we've, you know, our paths have crossed over the years, but somehow at that point he was just, he was taking this super seriously. Really? Oh, yeah. Going method? Is that what you're saying? I would say so. Yeah. So, okay. So interesting. Method is Casey Jones in the Ninja Turtles movie. I love this kind of thing where these type of things cross over. Yeah. Any circumstances where he was just in character between takes and you, you, he answered back as Casey Jones or is it that it was deep? Just, or? It, all the turtles, we were all... Uh, became good buddies because we were just like going through like weird boot camp together. And all of us are in essence goofballs. Um, And so we would, it it was kind of our survival um, (laughs) technique, you know, just being in these suits just to have a good time as much as possible and try to make each other laugh. And sometimes we would attempt to spill that over to him and it just, you know, wouldn't there, it wouldn't. There was no bounce back. You know, that's a little surprising because his character is a bit of a of a wise ass. Yeah, you know? but he was he was in fighter he, mode. He, he was in fighter mode. Yeah, <laughs> he was in it. Let's talk a bit more about the shoot. How was the director Steve Barron? Steve Barron was awesome. He's directed a couple of my favorite uh, music videos: "Money for Nothing" by Dire Straits and "Take on Me" by Aha. Uh-huh. He's, uh-huh. he's kind of uh, made a career for himself of doing interesting, different yeah. visuals. And then things. he did the Coneheads. That's movie. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was just uh, awesome. Just super, super great guy. He was let go at some point towards the end of this film. Yeah. Oh. Um, little inside. Oh yeah. Oh, is this an eye? Was there too exclusive? Yeah. <laughs> um, did you just do a panther growl? Um, yeah, he, he didn't get, um, they kind of took the picture away from him at the very end. So the editing might not be yeah. his version. Yeah. Interesting. Wow. But oh. he created such a great visual world and he, he did an amazing job. Did you get the sense that the 
film would be different if it was left in his control till the end or um well i think i think some people got were a little bit concerned about the darkness of the film. Right. But that really is what made it. You and know, that's that, what the comics were. And that's how I originally yeah. got into it because they were very violent and very dark. In fact, I think I pulled out of the Turtles franchise around the time it started getting very childlike. Right, know? right. Yeah, but I could see And I think it, some people out. got scared that it was going to be too – it would scare kids. But somehow it it there was a perfect balance of having a darkness but also – there was a, a lightness in the characters at the same time, and it made it feel safe and that you were entering another world. Mm-hmm. And I think that's part of why so many people responded to it. It's interesting that the credited editor, or at least one of them, is Sally Henke. It was her first film, and she was known for working on all of Quentin Tarantino's films. So I wonder how much of that carries through the whole process. I could see some similarities in his films for in this sure. one. Yeah. For sure. Uh, so we're just going to take a short break and we'll come back and talk about a lot of your other projects. Awesome. Great. back with Josh Pice, who uh, played Raphael in the Ninja Turtles. You also have a, a training institution called Committed Impulse. Is that correct? I do, yeah. Tell us a bit about that. I went to a very traditional acting school, um, and it was... Uh, very, the Little Red House? The, no. <laughs> uh, that, that was pre... Actually, the Little Red Schoolhouse is closer to Committed Impulse than, <laughs> than my actual... Oh, uh, now I'm curious. Um, well, just the my actor training in college was very... It made a lot of sense. It was very intellectual, and, um, and I was exposed to somebody who had just come back from working with uh, this wild dude named Jersey Grotowski. Oh, Jersey Grotowski. I, yeah, I read those books for my grad yeah. thesis. Yeah. Oh yeah. my God. Yeah. Now here we go. And so, you know, this woman came back and she had just come back from training with him and she, uh, was at our, uh, at my college and, uh, and exposed us to this work, which was very physical, very just completely out of your head, completely spontaneous, completely impulsive work. And it, just resonated for me. And so I went on a journey after college to train and seek out people, directors um, from really all different parts of the world that were training actors in a, in a physical, uh, non-psychological uh, way. You literally traveled around I, I the tra- world? I traveled around and I sought out people that, as they would come to the United States, mm. uh, like Tadashi Suzuki. I worked with the Avant-Garde Theater of Tokyo oh and just just sought out people because I really wanted to find a way to be spontaneous. Like I wanted to- It's the hardest thing to do, right? Yeah. yeah. And so I was just on a real mission because I just felt if I wasn't being spontaneous when I was creating, it was just bullshit. And I then was part of a, a theater company called Circle Rep in in New York City, and they said 
why don't I start directing and why don't I start training people in all this work that I've been doing? And I thought, okay, you know, I'll, I'll give that a shot. So for over a period of a year, um, I trained these actors. We created these theater pieces. And periodically, the deal was that we would show the process and people would come and just watch these exercises that I had created and NYU asked me to do it, and then I, I said, okay, I'm gonna, I'll, sure. Give it I'll, a shot. I'll, I'll, I'll do it, and, um, and I've been doing it, you know, most of my life. Um, Is it just, a different process from theater to film? Because no. different, so it's the same. Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, part of Committed Impulse is to, the initial part is to get people to a place of pure impulse in their body, and then to, um, to, convert that into whatever material um, they're working on and to give people tools to basically alter their physicality, which then alters their imagination and then allows them to create in the present moment. Uh, I want to ask you about a few of the things that you've done and what it was like to work on some of these kind of iconic shows and films. So you were on The Sopranos, a favorite of mine. Well, I mean, it was an episode, um, I mean, Steve Buscemi directed it, and uh, I played Junior's lawyer, <laughs> and just to just to be on that set was just amazing. Yeah, and what's to, the atmosphere like? There? It's just uh, focused, playful. Um, it felt like there was time to explore, but nothing, there was no wasted time. Uh-huh. Um and you know, just being at the table read and Gandolfini's like sitting across from me with he had like a big styrofoam thing of ziti and seriously, he's, really? seriously, and he's just like, you know, eating ziti, you know, all during, you know, all I'm during just the read through. He's Tony Soprano, yeah, or was, yeah. Um, was, and it was just a very, a very uh, focused, creative, playful, not no waste. Some some shows you can work on, and it just feels like. The, everybody's just standing around and it, you have no idea what's getting done, if anything. And then after about 10 minutes, somebody goes, okay, let's, uh, let's get back to it. And you have uh, like, and pe- everybody's just been standing around. Um, was David Chase pretty hands on? Um, well, Buscemi was really running it. I mean, uh, David so Chase, yeah. I they mean, gave him control. Yeah. Yeah. That's nice. Yeah. This was in the later season, right? Mm-hmm. So you knew the reputation of this show. Was there any kind of nerves you had to battle? Yeah. I mean, it was such a, um, it was a show that I really wanted to be a, be a part of. Yeah. I, I, you know, I worked on most, you know, most of the shows that shoot in New York and, um, but it was, I mean, this was just one of my favorite shows, and it meant, I mean, it, I had to just keep, you know, coming <laughs> back to just doing the work, because if I, you know, if, you got too if I got into, like, it, yeah. I can't believe I'm on the Sopranos, <laughs> you know, like, it would just, you know, destroy, you know, Absolutely. what I was doing, um, but, um, you know, once once we got shooting, like, everybody was just right there, you know, and it was just very, felt very immediate, which is something that I'm always, you know, I feel like if it's the if backbone the acting, of your work, yeah, right? yeah. If, if it's immediate and it's unfolding and each take is somewhat different and, 
um, and you're kind of directed, let's try it a little bit this way and that way. And it just felt like we were all in this together. Hmm. I didn't feel at all like I was um, a visitor. Like once we started shooting, it was just like we're, we're all creating this together. You worked on a film by another auteur, Charlie Kaufman's Synecdoche in New York. Mm-hmm. How was that? Again, I mean, just to work with him. You've and had it, some, some real yeah. <laughs> jobs. And also to work with Philip Seymour Hoffman right. um, was, um, you know, outs- outstanding. Uh, fortunately, I had met him a couple times prior, so it wasn't um, – and he's just – he was just an awesome, great guy just right there and no pretense at all. So um, even though, you know – on some level, I couldn't help but put him up on, on a pedestal. Sure. I also knew that he was very right there kind of guy. And um, that seems like the type of pedestal where his work would inform yours and fuel it rather than intimidate you. Absolutely. And he seems generous. I've never had any contact with him, but he yeah. seems that way. And Charlie Kaufman, he almost directed with this energy. He has like this creative, chaotic energy in, in him. That you can't see right now, but Josh is I'm just gesticulating like crazy. And, yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, if you could see inside his, his skull, it would probably just, the atoms would be like just in a high, high <laughs> velocity speed, but on outside, he's very, he's more still. And, but somehow he, with very few words, he communicates a lot. And um, it was it was awesome. It was an awesome experience. Hmm. Now you've got some very interesting projects coming up. First of all, the TV show Sex, Drugs, and Rock and Roll with Dennis Leary. You've yeah. worked with him before, right? You yeah, a couple times. Have a, quite a rapport at this point, right? Yeah, yeah. He wrote this for me. Is this all because you'd worked together before, or did yeah. you know him prior? No, we just knew each other from from working, and really didn't have any contact. Um, in between. The last thing I want to ask you about is the film you have coming out called I Saw the Light, which is the biopic of Hank Williams. I'm right. a big Hank Williams fan. Oh, yeah. So you play Dor Sherry, the yeah. producer and director. Yeah. Producer, yeah. MGM, yeah. head of MGM. And... I wasn't aware of how they cross paths. Does, how does this, can you spoil it or? Um, well, it's basically. Um, Tom Hiddleston is playing Hank Williams, yeah. which seems like great casting it, to me. They he, just... I mean, he. He's amazing in this. In this, and I, um, and the his singing. He's so he's actually singing. He's, he's, really. Yeah, oh, he he really he really went for it, and it's 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 masterful. When does this come out? I don't know exactly. I don't think the date's been set. Are you you're looking it up? I am. And now he's looking it up. We'll huh? cut all this out. Oh, no. Maybe we won't maybe if we yeah, continue this to talk like this. This, this might talk be like what we. This may be the brunt this is the of voice. the whole thing. This might be the 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 opening trailer for the whole the podcast. So all it says is, I saw the light, 2015. So sometime this year. Don't miss it. We should have talked like this the whole time. We really, really. Well, let me, the boat. let me tell you a little bit about what Why happened. Why don't you story? Okay. If, if I may. Please. Uh, so basically, um, you know, Hank Williams is a superstar. Yeah. You know, back in the day. And um, and uh, and I play a big, big, big Hollywood. You know, the guy that runs MGM, Dory Shari. 
and I don't know if I can do it anymore. That's all right. Um, but uh, and and basically, I try to bring him into the movie business, mm. uh, and and he's got a lot of attitude, and I'm not used to people having a lot of attitude. And did that happen? Did he go? That yeah, did happen. Yeah. Just briefly, it must just have, because he didn't yeah, live long, just briefly. did he? No. Back of a Cadillac. Hey, yeah. boom. <laughs> I cannot alert. wait for that movie. Yeah, it's going to be, it's going to be, it's going to be a good one. I will be looking for you in it. Okay. Um, the listeners can find you at Josh Pice on Twitter, right? J-O-S-H-P-A-I-S. Yeah. Anywhere else that you'd uh, uh, like them to Instagram. find you? Instagram, you oh, do it yeah, all. Yeah, I do some pictures. You do. Yeah. All right. Um, a lot of if you want to see my dog, I post a lot of my cat pictures oh, on really? Instagram. As I well, so. I do believe I have the cutest dog ever. I believe I have the cutest cat ever, and I'm sure we're the first to ever think this about yeah. our stupid. No, but cats. I'm. Um, You're sure? Like I literally cannot walk down the street without people right. s- stopping. Let's take a let's talk like this for just a little bit longer while we take I think a look. Phones, pull yeah. up your pictures. All right, Josh. It's just your name on Instagram, right? Uh, Josh Pice. There it is. Let's see. Well, the first thing I'm seeing is uh, a picture of my penis. What seems to be a naked woman in the streets of New York oh, with that her is a naked woman. buttocks painted. See, NY. that's enough to get people. Yeah. to look. Come for the uh, dog, but yeah, stay was, for the body yeah. painting. Oh, look at this! Whoa, you're not kidding, right? It's like it's a Welsh corgi wearing a fur coat. Yeah, he's an Australian Shepherd. Kuma. Kuma. Yeah. What's the meaning of that name? Uh, Kuma means bear in Japanese, oh and he looks like a bear, right? He looks like a teddy bear. Yeah, he looks he, he, he looks like an animated character. He really, like really people, does. The other day, I was, you know, I'm most of the time in New York, but I'm more and more in LA. And this car came around the corner, and it was like I saw the whole thing in slow motion. It was like this beautiful, voluptuous blonde, and she kind of, you know, swayed her head, and her hair went to the side, and she, and she saw Kuma. Like, I thought maybe, you know, she didn't see me at all. Uh, but she saw Kuma and just, like, was, like, she almost licked her lips. Like, and she was, is this, like, a beautiful, slow, you know. What do you think about that? Wow. Oh, my God. That's Margo, the fat guy. Wow. She's Margo? Huge. Yeah, Margo. We gave her the most pretentious name. Did you say the name. fat guy? The fat, she's a girl. It's a long story. Okay. It's a long, I've always called cats fat guys, I think, because I had That's, a fat boy when I was a kid. Boy okay. cat. Anyway, that's, that's yeah troubling. That's beautiful. Yeah. Well, you have three hundred thirty-nine likes. Margot has three hundred thirty-nine yeah. likes. Right? Yeah, she's a looker. You yeah. know what? Congratulations to us for our yeah. absolutely hey. the best-looking cat and dog ever. Yeah, Josh Pice, thank you so much oh, for joining pleasure. me today. It was great to talk to you. My thanks to Josh Pice, and you can find out more about his acting training at committedimpulse.com. I'd also like to thank Lacey Lovett and Steve Snowy for connecting me to Josh. It's people like that out there doing the Lord's work that makes this show possible. Thank you. Now, on to something special and culturally important. Here's a little movie trivia you probably haven't heard. In 2002, Star Wars Episode II, Attack of the Clones, undisputably the best of the six Star Wars films, was released. But Natalie Portman almost didn't reprise her role as Padme. Due to a contract negotiation that went south, Lucas went as far as casting and shooting with another actress. Some people say it was a bluff. Some people say it was an insurance policy. But either way, it worked. And eventually, Natalie Portman returned to the film. But that footage exists with the previous actress, and it's none other than past I Was There Too guest, 
Margot the fat guy. Now that seems ridiculous, and also like a premise for this podcast, but it's absolutely true. We're going to talk to Margot a little bit about how this happened, but first, let's take a listen to the never-before-released scene. This is between Margot, who is playing Padme, and Hayden Christensen as Anakin Skywalker. They've been captured by the Geonosians and are bound on a chariot, about to enter an arena of death when they pledge their love for each other in a very tender moment. Don't be afraid. to live a lie and that it would destroy our lives Margo the Fat Guy, I want to thank you for taking the time to come back on I Was There Mew. And what are you up to these days? That fat, huh? How are things with your owners? Because I know last time you weren't exactly treating us well. Oh, a horrible fat monster? So stupid you need four legs to be the dumbest thing on two legs? But we love you all the same? I see. All right, look, I just want to get to it. Now, I didn't even know you were in this film. What was that experience like? As a Gungan? Oh, you're talking about midichlorians. Yeah, I was sad they dropped that too. Now, speaking of franchise films, and this is apparently true, you jumped on the screen door of a high-up second-story window and rode it down to the ground like Indiana Jones did that life raft in Temple of Doom. Is that right? And you were okay? Because you're a huge ball of absolute padding. I see. Well, Margo, I want to thank you for talking to me again today, like you do every morning at 5 a.m. when you walk on my face. I love you. I was there, Mew. That's it for I Was There Too. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Matt Gorley. Please give this podcast a review on iTunes. That helps keeps us bumps up in the charts. Got a little plural stroke there. Also, email me if you can connect me to a great guest for the show at Iwasthere2pod at gmail.com. And also, email me with your listener questions. I'm probably going to do an answer some questions segment sometime soon for this podcast. So if you want to know anything about how this show works or what it's like or who I am wearing... <laughs> Please email me as well at IWasThere2Pod at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Dire Straits. Pop. 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 Pop.
Wolfpop is part of Midroll Media, executive produced by Adam Sachs, Matt Gorley, and Paul Scheer. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.